Perhaps you've heard the conventional wisdom, what goes around comes around. You get what you pay for. You only get out of something what you put into it. That's conventional wisdom of how our world works, and and I guess for the most part it might be true. The problem comes in that we far too often try to apply this conventional wisdom in our understanding of how God works. We do it in more pious ways than that. We think things sometimes like, I need to make sure I spend a certain amount of time in prayer and reading my Bible. That way God will be pleased with me. Or I need to make sure I get to church this Sunday so that God will be happy enough with me to bless me. The problem is with with both of these sets of understandings is, is that they're not biblical. They don't follow the pattern of gospel truth. They show us a pattern that says we can somehow affect how God deals with us, that we determine what he thinks and does, which is giving us far too much credit. The gospel pattern is rather one that God loves us because God loves us. And then we respond to his love by doing whatever we do as a loving response of his grace. Christian conduct should always follow from Christian doctrine. The imperatives of what we should do rest upon the indicatives of what God has already done. What we do is determined by what is true about God and how he has related to us. Basically, this is at the heart of the understanding of the gospel, so much so that if we look at how Paul composed his letters, most commonly they follow this pattern, uh, where the first half of his letter will be about what is true about God and what he has done and how he has worked. And then the second half of the letter will turn to what we ought to do as a response to that. And so it is with the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, He says in the first three chapters many things about what God has done. For instance, he has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He has predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. He has lavished his grace upon us, forgiving our trespasses and redeeming us through his blood. He has though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he has reconciled us not only to himself, but to one another. He builds us together as one body into a temple for the Holy Spirit and strengthens us with power through that spirit so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. And it is in light of all of these things that he has done for us that Paul then turns his focus and in Ephesians 4 starts to focus on how we should then, in light of these truths, live our lives. And this is what he says. This is the inspired word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the unity that you have created and pray that you would teach us about that unity here this morning. Speak in and to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking this week as I was thinking about this passage, and a thought came to my mind, actually. I, I thought about the Guinness Book of World Records and how when I was a young child, I used to love to look through the Guinness Book. I don't know if any of you shared this type of fascination with me, but the facts in there were amazing. And I especially, when I was younger, loved the pictures of just these, these really strange oddities that were just amazing. And there was one in particular that I remember that just sticks out that really fascinated me. And I'm not even exactly sure what record it was that they set that got them in, but there's a picture in the Guinness Book of World Records of these Siamese twins. And, and perhaps they were in there for being the longest living Siamese twins. or I don't know why they were in there, but there was a picture in there. And I was fascinated with this picture. Because I would look at these two individuals, two people, who were yet joined together, bound together, unable to separate from one another, sharing in life with one another everything. Each experience that one had by virtue of the fact that they were bound together, need also be shared by the other. And so this would certainly cause many inconveniences for them, and they would share in many joys. But it just fascinated me when I, when I imagined what their life must be like. And I thought about that picture this week as I was thinking about this passage where Paul talks about the unity that we are supposed to have as believers in Christ, as members of his body. How we likewise are to be bound together. How we are to share life with one another. How my joys ought to be your joys and your sorrows ought to be my sorrows. And it occurred to me that there is a very striking similarity between these Siamese twins and the type of unity that Paul calls us to in this passage. I want to first consider the basis for this call to unity that Paul has. We starts off by saying, I therefore, and we've talked before about the word therefore and how that points us back to what has preceded it. And we mentioned at the beginning here today just this idea that the truths of the gospel, the gospel truths of what God has done, what he has accomplished, ought to be what motivates us and what empowers us and what causes us to live lives of faithfulness to him, doing the things that we do. It is because of the love of God 
that we are supposed to live this life of unity. It is because he has made us sons and heirs with Christ that we should live this kind of unity. It is because he has bound us together as a family, even as a body, that we must live a life reflected, reflective of this. Paul goes on to say, I therefore a prisoner. Why does he say a prisoner? Well, one answer for sure could be because he was at the time under house arrest in Rome. But he doesn't say, I therefore a prisoner of Rome. He says a prisoner of Christ. He says this because he was indeed a prisoner of Christ. A prisoner for his sake and a prisoner to his purposes. And for this reason, not only can Paul urge them, but he must urge them. Not only does he have a desire to urge them, but it is a compelling need. It's not just a right, but a responsibility. He has to urge them to live this life of unity because, as he has written elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says, I, Paul, died with Christ and have been raised with Christ, and therefore I now live for Christ. And you, Ephesians, and you, by extension, Calvary Presbyterian Church, died with Christ and have been raised with Christ and now must live for Christ and walk in a manner worthy of this calling. This idea of walking calls us back to Ephesians 2 where he told us that we originally walked in the sins and trespasses that were so characteristic of our lives until we being dead in those sins and trespasses were made alive by the grace of God so that we might walk in the good deeds that God has prepared beforehand for us. This is the essence of Paul's call to unity. But what is the content of the call? What does it look like to practically walk in unity with one another? Well, in verse 2, Paul says that we should walk with all humility and gentleness. If we look at this idea of humility first, we'll see that in the ancient Uh, ancient Greek secular literature, it it was not a positive character trait. F.F. Bruce says that it is somewhat like the idea of the crouching submissiveness of a slave. You see, humility was not a positive character trait. It was something that, that you were beaten into. It was something that was forced upon you. But Christ changed all this. Christ comes with a humble heart in a humble life and shows us what true humility is. We still are slow to catch on to this. Our culture today does not value humility like it ought to. If you asked a thousand people on the street, if you could be anything, what would you want to be? How many do you think would say, I want to be humble? Not many, if any, would answer that. And frankly, knowing my own heart, I wouldn't answer that either. But we are called here by Paul and by God himself to be humble. The idea here is 
not one of weakness here. It's not one of having no rights, but rather one of submitting one's own rights, putting them aside, not being concerned about them. It's been said that self-satisfaction depends on the standard with which we compare ourselves. And I think what we often do is we look at the people around us, our neighbors, the people we see on the news, and we say, you know what? I'm not so bad as them. We compare ourselves to that standard, and we say we're not as bad as them, and we think, therefore, that God must, therefore, be pleased with us. Not a humble attitude. Not a humble attitude at all. We need to make sure that, rather, we judge ourselves against the holiness of God. And if we do that, it's a scary thing because we see how very far short we come up to that standard. We've just spent a Christmas season wherein we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. Come, God, be with us. What a wonderful thing that is. And it is a wonderful thing. Do not hear me wrong. But it is a wonderful thing only because of the gospel. Only because Christ has washed us clean from our sin. Because without that cleansing, the idea of God with us is a terrible thing. Think about how it's been responded to throughout scripture. Genesis 3, Adam sins, mankind falls, and Adam hides himself from God when God comes to walk with him in the garden. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, and I hid myself. In Exodus 20, God gives the Ten Commandments. The people see the, the thunder and the lightning and, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. They were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. The prophet Isaiah comes before Almighty God and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. The New King James Version says, I am undone. The New American Standard Bible perhaps hits it best, says, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, God with us is a frightful and terrible thing. If we are sinners, and we are, but he has cleansed us from our sin. He has paid the price of our penalty. And on the cross, he has made us white as snow. And it is for that reason and only for that reason that the idea of God with us, Emmanuel, is a good thing. Another way that we sometimes lack humility in our understanding of Christianity is in our current uh, evangelical culture, we have a lot of thought of Christianity being about Jesus and me. And certainly it is. Christ indeed does save individuals, but he does not save us to individualism. 
he saves individuals to be part of a body. We are part of a community. We are supposed to live not only with a vertical connection between Jesus and me, but with a horizontal connection between me and the rest of the body of Christ. And if we are failing to do this, then we are failing what God has called us to do. It is because we are not by ourselves, but rather a member of a community that is important for us to do. The other thing that Paul says in verse 2, this idea that we are to be uh, walking with gentleness. Now gentleness, again, is not a synonym for weakness. The term here is actually a term that was used uh, for uh, domesticated animals. The idea that they had ferocity, a power, but it was tamed it was kept under control and so the same word is used of us here it's the idea of a willingness to forego one's own rights for the well-being of others verse 2 goes on to say we're called to walk with patience bearing with one another in love if we were to think of an example of patience the primary example of course is God himself God who spoke to Moses proclaiming his own name, declaring himself to be the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Consider the patience of God shown throughout the Bible. Generation after generation, he is patient and forgiving even though others have wronged him. We think sometimes of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, as this collection of stories about heroes of the faith. And this is so wrong. It is so wrong. Because every little story in the Bible is part of a bigger story about God, who is the hero of the larger story. But he's also the hero of every one of those smaller stories too. When Noah boards an ark, and sails away to safety. Noah is not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. When Abraham leaves his home in search of another city, he is not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. When Moses stares down Pharaoh and leads the people out of Egypt, he is not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story of the story. And when David slays the giant Goliath, he is not the hero. God is the hero. We could look at each one of these four men who we sometimes think of as heroes of the faith, and we could point to gross acts of sin in their life. Times at which God could rightly judge them and condemn them. And yet God is patient with them and forbearing and works through them. He forgives and shows patience. Patience which is shown to us ultimately at the cross where our sins are forgiven. He did not die for us because we are so wonderful. He did not choose us like children on the playground picking up teams for kickball saying, oh boy, we will win if only I have Pete on my team. No. He knows what a dirty, rotten sinner I am. 
And what a dirty, rotten sinner you are too. And frankly, your addition to his team does not help him. He is patient and forgiving. He loves us. And 1 John tells us that we love because he first loved us. But note too what follows. God go, or he goes on to say there that if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. He says, if you don't love your brother, it is impossible for you to love God. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must, imperative, you need to, non-negotiable, must love his brother. This means looking past things that our brothers and sisters might have done to us, things that might annoy us about them, ways in which they might have wronged us. This is neither natural nor easy. Fyodor Dostoevsky, in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, has a character who says, I have often come to make enthusiastic schemes for the service of humanity. And perhaps I might actually have faced crucifixion if it had been suddenly necessary. And yet, I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together as I know by experience. As soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs my self-complacency and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One, because he's too long over his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. Dostoevsky realized this about himself, and we ought to realize it about ourselves too, if we are honest. That we are called to live in community, yet when we live in community, we become disturbed, we become, we become annoyed, we become pained, because we'd, we'd much rather live out a life of fierce individualism. But instead of this individualism, Paul says in verse 3, we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now this word for eager here is, is not just having this feeling that we ought to, that we need to you know, feel like we want to have this exist, but rather it is uh, a diligence it is an active eagerness. It is doing something about it. It means a total dedication to it. And here we need to have a total dedication to maintain unity, a oneship. This oneship which the Holy Spirit has actually already created and he holds together. So what Paul must be saying here is not the actual oneship that stands behind it, but the visible oneship that the world sees, that we can see must be maintained by the bond of peace. Pick up on the Hebrew idea of shalom, not just the absence of conflict and not just pretending to get along, but rather right relationship of each 
one to another. All things fitting together perfectly as they are intended to do. This is what we are to live out. This kind of rightness in the body of Christ. And why is it important? Why does it matter? It matters because the pattern and the source of this unity is no less than the triune God himself. Look again with me at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice the word one, repeated, one, 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 seven times. The word one, seven, the number of completeness, of perfection, of wholeness. And seven times not saying anything in particular anything in general but something in particular seven times saying one the most ancient of creeds of the people of God is the Shema found in Deuteronomy 6 4 which reads hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one and most conspicuous by their presence within these seven ones are one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. Do you notice that? God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit. Paul is highlighting the triune God here to us. Because just as the triune God has existed for all eternity as separate individuals, it is at the same time existed in complete unity with one another. Three individual persons, one God, completely unified in purpose and bound together inextricably, working in complete harmony. This is the kind of unity that we are to have within the church. Unity which mirrors the unity of the triune God. It's not just here. Christ prays about it in his high priestly prayer, where he's praying for his disciples. He says, I ask not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Why does he want this triune unity to be the pattern, the source, the the kind of unity that we have as the body of Christ? He does it because that unity that we exhibit makes a statement about God. And if we exhibit and express that kind of unity, which is the kind of unity that truly exists in God, then we are saying something right about who God is. But if we don't express that kind of unity and experience it here in the body of Christ, 
then we are saying something wrong about God. We are making a statement about the person of God that is untrue. And to make a statement about the person of God that is untrue is what is called blasphemy. And so in a very real way, when we fail to experience and exhibit the unity that Paul is calling us to here, we are blaspheming the person of God. And that is a serious thing. And the world looks at us and they see if we are experiencing this kind of unity though. And they see that there is something different about us. And they see that the way we maintain unity and and overcome obstacles to it is different. And they say there is something there. And they see the way that we exercise forgiveness with one another and they say I want that I want to forgive like that I want to be forgiven like that people hunger for that but if we are unable to stand out from the world and instead we look just like the world that is watching us unable to forgive then Jesus has these hard words for us If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's been said many times from this pulpit right here that the most important thing we do is worship God. And that is absolutely correct. It is the most important thing that we do. But Jesus also has this to say in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool! will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, as important as proper worship is, Jesus essentially says here that is not made manifest just by singing the right songs, by bringing the right offering, by by praying the right prayers, by reading the right scripture passages, by listening to the right sermons. He says if you are going to properly worship God, that first you must be right with your brothers. If you are at enmity with your brother, then you cannot worship God rightly that is what he says here and that ought to scare us it ought to wake us up it ought to frighten us because i dare say that there are those among us myself included who have come here on a sunday morning to worship god while not being at peace with my brothers and if that's the case then no matter what I've said or prayed or sung or whatever I've done, 
could be a lot of things, but it was not worshiping God rightly. I don't want you to take the initiative to be reconciled to your brother because you're scared, because you're, you're afraid of judgment, or because you're afraid of the fires of hell. I want you to take the initiative to be reconciled to your brother because God in Christ took the initiative to be reconciled to you. And it is this love of God in Christ which ought to compel us to love others as he has loved us. So in conclusion, let me ask you this question. Do you live a life of love toward those brothers and sisters in Christ who annoy you, who bug you, who do things to spite you and to hurt you? Do you live a life toward them that is patient and kind? Do you live a life toward them that does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude? Do you live a life toward them that does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful, that does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth? A life that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and yes, even endures all things. A life that does not give up on these people no matter what they might have done to you. This sort of life seems like it would be impossible for us to do. It seems that I do not have the capacity to do that. But there is a power at work in us that makes it possible. It is the power of God Almighty, for we are the body of Christ, and his Holy Spirit resides in us. And we have been reminded in these recent weeks of how Christ is the, just the perfect example of humility. For Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." If we are truly the body of Christ, then both this humility and this power are at work in us. And therefore, this unity that Paul calls us to is not our work at all, but rather the work of God that he has prepared beforehand that we might simply walk in it to the glory of his name. And since this is true, we say with Paul, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would indeed 
prove this kind of unity to be at work in our midst. Teach us and show us and lead us and empower us that we might mirror the unity that exists in you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.